Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well, including two Patreon-only podcast documentary series, an uncanny hour which looks at some of the overlooked gems and oddities of culture, like why humans continue to believe in alien visitation via UFOs and the films of John Carpenter and David Cronenberg, as well as our latest series, Tips for Existence, which is Robin Ince in conversation with scientists and artists about searching for meaning in a meaningless universe. Some guests on that show include Brian Green and Tim Minchin and Neil Gaiman and Andrean and Nicole Stott and Chris Jackson, Carlo Ravelli and lots more as well. And now, here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to Cosmic Shambles Sunday Science Q&A. And uh, today we're doing, as as we've been doing over the last year, every normally about kind of three months, uh, a little update on uh, our kind of understanding of of, of COVID. And you've sent in a lot of fantastic questions uh, about that. And uh, we have a brilliant panel, all of whom have been on before. Obviously, you will see Helen Chersky shortly. And uh, we're also joined by uh, Dan Davis and Sheena Cruikshank. Uh, mention a few things before we get started, one of which is uh, if you can support us via Patreon, that is fantastic. We, But thanks to Patreon supporters, we are able to make at least two shows a week that are free to everyone. And then also, if you do support us via Patreon, there's a load of other stuff as well, like the Uncanny Hour uh, documentary series that I do about kind of horror movies and weird fiction and stuff in the most recent episode of that is about John Carpenter movies and that's got Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and Reese Shearsmith and uh, Clara Nellist and uh, Priya Natrajan. We've got proper physicists talking about the nature of good and evil from the perspective of John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Samira Ahmed's on it as well and uh, so those come out every couple of weeks and every week as well we have a new series called Tips for Existence where I talk to scientists and artists about kind of understanding the best ways of trying to get through life and the methods they've found if this universe is unfortunately without any grand meaning or purpose and the first two of those Brian Green um, and uh, Nicole Stott the uh, astronaut earthling and artist and uh, the next one that's coming up on wednesday is tim minchin i had a long chat with tim minchin so all of those become available to you if you support us for our patreon um but that's yeah if you're able to we're still we haven't hit our target yet 
but we're making about four or five things a week anyway and we're trying to make them better and better so i hope you're enjoying what you're seeing uh and then tonight the young ones quiz it's rick Mail's birthday today uh he would have been 63 and uh, last night i was on mastermind my specialist subject was the young ones and just to make it quite clear yes i did forget the answers bacon sandwich and i do know that chalk is predominantly made out of calcium and i do know that it was general franco but you don't know what it's like when you're in that chair it is very very nerve-wracking and also john humphreys asked such long questions that i forgot what they were by the end of it so you can stop putting the questions about chalk in the live chat well we've got about five of them we'll deal with those but after that we don't need any more questions about chalk um well we might need some actually there's a lot of issues with chalk so i'll leave that up to you um and uh and that's it that's it really that's all i need to tell you about the beginning uh um and let's start with meeting helen and uh, helen you have a i presume you have a this week in uh in science history for us i do i do but um before we get that now i have to confess i haven't caught up with your uh, mastermind appearance last night but if there's a question about calcium and chalk so quite a lot of the chalk you actually use to write on blackboards now isn't um chalk from cliffs and it is made of magnesium so I don't know what the question was. However, you might well have been justified in saying magnesium if it, was, if it wasn't natural chalk, because lots of chalks, there are chalks that are made from, that are based with, on magnesium instead of calcium. You're on the right bit of the periodic table. Anyway. Can I just say, you know, when you work out why you've had a long working relationship with someone, that was exactly one of those reasons <laughs> there. <laughs> they won't have me in the back of Mastermind. Can you imagine <laughs> the little sideshow at the end, little scientists going, oh, I think you'll find um anyway you and the doctor who fan who goes i'm afraid john that is not the correct answer about the side men we must do a yeah. retake yeah would be great anyway so yes in in science this week we are going back to 1791 and what happened in march of 1791 is that uh, luigi galvani published his book on um animal electricity well he thought it was animal electricity and it was the culmination of 11 years work of doing things that sounded quite unpleasant, to be honest. Some of them in collaboration, these experiments, scientific experiments, in collaboration with his wife, um, and they were applying electrical um, well, potentials. They didn't know what they were, but applying electricity of some sort, as far as they were concerned, to bits of dead animals, one way or another, and finding that muscles twitch. And at the time, so he was convinced, it, it's a really kind of interesting history here, because he got Galvani sort of got there first. It was known that if you applied some electricity to a dead bit of animal, the muscles twitched. Um, and he thought that that was animal electricity, the spark of life. And then um, uh, Volta came along at, at the same sort of slightly afterwards and said, well, actually, this is just a chemical reaction. There is a chemical reaction that can generate um, an electric potential. And so Volta was nice enough to call it galvanism, named it after Galvani. Um, and then it carried on as a physical thing, this understanding that you could generate an electric potential by having a chemical reaction. And But actually later on, you know, um, Luigi Galvani became known as, as the father of, um, I'm going to check the phrase here, electrophysiology. Because, of course, our bodies are full of electricity. There is a potential difference of voltage between the inside and the outside of a cell, for example, membrane potential. Um, our nerves operate entirely on, you know, electric signals being sent to and fro. And so in a way, I think, and of course, everyone at the time was fascinated by this. And they had these, there was a public demonstration after Galvani had died where they, they did this to a human corpse. You know, they got some prisoner that had just been executed and made his face contort and horrible things. Um 
but in principle, I mean, and this, and this sparked, so Mary Shelley, so this was in uh, 1791, that demonstration with a human was 1803. Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein in 1818. And so this was a huge topic of public interest. And then it led through to our understanding of cell biology and uh, certainly our nervous system today. And so animal ele electricity, it's sort of in there. It does do things. You know, I once saw IVF being done on a cat, long story. Anyway, the point where they actually join the uh, the other, they, they took out um, the all the DNA from one type of egg and put in different DNA. It was a bit more complicated than the normal procedure. But anyway, there was a spark of electricity. They genuinely put a spark across it to fuse the two together. And so I think, you know, this idea of the spark of life and Frankenstein, it wasn't that far off. But yes, yeah, so all of that got started uh, three, 230 years ago this month. To the graveyards, my friend. We have work to do. Um, thank you very much, Helen. Um, and uh, uh, Sheena Crookshank is with us again, immunologist, uh, based as both of our guests are at the University of uh, Manchester, Professor of Biomedical Sciences there. Um, Sheena, hello. Hello. Do you have a, a show and tell for us today? I, I do, I do. Um, and uh, it's this. Can you see that? Yeah. That's, it's actually a desert rose, but I picked it because it reminds me of uh, an immune cell, which I'll probably have to show you a picture of, which I'm just bringing up now. Cancel. Yeah. Is that going to work? Wow. Yes. Yeah. So how big is that, the thing in the picture? Um, it's, my, it's probably about ooh, three to five microns big, which is, what, 10 to the six, smaller than a... Meter, meter. Is that it's right? a thousandth of a millimeter, a few thousandths of a meter. Brain, <laughs> Didn't sleep last night. Anyway, um, it was so that was that was coined a veiled cell. So if you go back to the turn, so I'm going to do a bit of history now as well. If you go back to the turn of the sort of 20th century, there were kind of two camps in immunology. So there was this idea of innate immunology, which was Metchnikoff, which was this idea that that we've got inbuilt ways to kind of recognize and deal with infection. And then you had kind of uh, Ehrlich and people like that who were coming up with this idea that you had specific immunity and specific responses, clonal responses that were very fine tuned to the immune response, which ultimately became what we know as adaptive immunity. And of course, we know that that's things like your B lymphocytes, your T lymphocytes, and people have actually heard of T cells now <laughs> because of all the things around COVID. But what they didn't know is, is how these two systems related and how particularly the T cells were getting the information that was going to tell them how to be clonal, how to recognize those specific parts. They knew it was really tiny, tiny, tiny little bits. It was like amino acids. They were able to work that out. But they just didn't know how, what it was happening. So there was this sort of quest to kind of join the two parts of immune, uh, immunology together. And so there were the research groups. There was two research groups. And there's a big research group in the States, which is really um, kind of given all the, the sort of credit for, for discovering it. But there was somebody working on it in the UK. And that's why I referred to the veiled cell. Um, and that was Bridget Balfour, and she was working in, in the UK, and she was very interested in a special type of, of innate cell that she'd seen called a macrophage, which is what Metchnikoff actually discovered. And, ma and macrophages can kind of gobble things up. 
but she'd noticed that there were some cells that seemed to kind of leave the skin site and they, they traveled through um, kind of channels in the body, we call them lymphatics. And if she tapped those, drained them, she found cells that looked like this. So she called them veiled cells. And she, she started to wonder if they were a little bit different. And, and meanwhile, Steinman was looking at the same problem and he was looking at some cells that I think I've got the first image he took of them here. So they're not veiled anymore. They are in fact dendrite um, and he called them dendritic cells. And it turns out they actually are the same cell, but they have this ruffled appearance when they're traveling through the lymph to get to the sites where they're going to give the information to the T cells. And it was these cells that were the vital piece that were able to take information from pathogens or cells. They could take it from kind of look at cancerous cells or, uh, or virally infected cells and take information from that process into the right kind of way and with the right type of signals, give the information to the T cells. So the T cells then knew what to do and the T cells could then clonally proliferate and go off and deal with the infection. And of course, Steinman ultimately got the Nobel Prize for that. But there you go. That's my show and tell. The Desert Rose or the Veiled Cell. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Um, and we're also joined by Dan Davis, Professor of Immunology at the University of Manchester. Uh, and you have a new book that's out. It's not out yet, is it, Dan, I don't think? Yeah, it's not out yet, no. Yeah, it's not out yet, no. First of July. First July, right, so The yeah. Secret Body. Um, what have you got for your show and tell, Dan? Well, uh, I didn't I didn't go uh, with immunology. I went with this book here, uh, Brian Greene's The Elegant Universe. Many of you, many of you uh, people watching this will know this book. Uh, but this is a particularly special copy of this book for me. Um, when I was... Uh, I did physics for my PhD and then I went to the US and worked in immunology. Um, and when you're, after your PhD, you know, you're called a postdoc. And when you're a postdoc, often you also help other students uh, uh, do their research. So I had an uh, undergraduate student doing a project with me. Uh, his name was Isaac Chu. Um, he is now a professor at Harvard who studies how the immune system interacts with the nervous system and how pain works, for example. So, but at that time, uh, he was an undergraduate. He didn't actually seem like the kind of guy that was become a professor at Harvard. I remember him once at the microscope in a, in a, in a darkened room, falling asleep uh, onto a mushy banana. Uh, but he was the project student I had. Uh, and his father uh, was Xing Tung Yao, is Xing Tung Yao. Xing Tung Yao um, is a very, very famous mathematician. He won the Fields Medal uh, for uh, maths, which is kind of like the Nobel Prize of maths. Um, when I was leaving uh, the US to come back to the UK, Xing uh, Tung Yao was very grateful that I'd helped his son do some immunology in the lab. So he gave me a present. Uh, and this was the present. At the time, uh, Brian Green wasn't as famous as he was now. This book had just come out. Uh, it's kind of a classic now. But what he had done, uh, because he was, Xing Tung Yao was well known, is he had sent this book uh, all around different places in the US to get it signed by all the different people that are in the book. So uh, so you'll see that um, my copy is signed by lots and lots of, well, maybe you can't see that. Uh, I'm going to drop it. But it's signed by lots and lots of different people. So it went all around uh, the US, signed by all the different people in the book. 
Uh, and so it's a special copy of that book. And the book itself is absolutely brilliant. Many of you already know that. You spoke to Brian Green uh, uh, very recently uh, in Book Shambles. And so uh, it's also, uh, for me, work, uh, a couple of other things. Firstly, it's about it's also about the idea that all of science is really important to me. So it's, you know, I might be able to talk a lot about immunology, but I also deeply enjoy reading about hidden dimensions, uh, time travel, you know, as, as both Robin and Helen and, and you know, you, you do in, in these programs, you know, all of science is profoundly deeply important uh, uh, to me in, in lockdown reading Thinking about different kinds of science uh, has been some solace, uh, I think. And, you know, I remember Robin did the show once, Happiness Through Science. Maybe that was years and years ago. Uh, but I like that title. Uh, I don't know if happiness can come through science. Obviously, happiness also comes from connections to people. Uh, but that also happens in science. So it's all entwined. Uh, that, that's, that's the thing I have to show and tell. See, I think that's the thing where, because happiness, that was because there's so many people who presumed that everything kind of every time you face up to some evidence-based reality it lessens you as a human being and it was kind of a rebuttal to that and in fact that's the book that I've just just written now which I'm still editing but I think that is that's one of the things isn't it which is about connection as you mentioned which I think that is when you start I just pulled out this is on my desk at the moment which is until the end of time which is Brian Greene's most recent one which is probably the one which has the most about the importance of looking at the human reaction to the understanding of the universe. And I think that's the thing is that the more you read, the more you go, whether you're looking at a picture of the cosmic microwave background radiation, whether you're looking at, you know, when the, 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 you know, the, the, the understanding of genomes, etc. all of those things just keep adding connection and adding stories. And I think that's beautiful. So yeah, I would highly recommend his work. And uh, let's now I'm going to, the first question I'm going to throw out to you is actually a question from me. Um, Cause it's something I, I don't understand. Don't worry. I'm not going to cover everything. I don't understand. We don't have that kind of time. Um, but is it chalk? Um, yeah, no chalk is, well, a lot of people seem to be under the false idea that chalk is predominantly chalk. I've heard actually it's mainly magnesium nowadays. It's barely <laughs> calcium at all. Anyway, but the uh, is about the fact that if you're vaccinated, the difference between being vaccinated and not therefore getting ill with COVID, but the ability to still transmit COVID is something that I don't understand. Um, so Sheena, can you, what, what does that, what is the, cause I've, I've read various things. My wife was just telling me about this, the, the fact that the, you know, you can be vaccinated and you can be basically immune, but you can still transmit. So how does that work? Yeah, that, so it, there's different, I think different aims sometimes with vaccination Sometimes you're trying to get what we call a sterilizing vaccine. A sterilizing vaccine means, for example, you've got really high levels of neutralizing antibodies. As soon as the pathogen gets inside you, it's destroyed. Um, or you can have what we're really getting with the, the current COVID vaccines. It's vaccines that will give you immunity, but not sterilizing immunity. So they're reducing the kind of severity of the infection. But what that means is there's a chance for the, the virus to get in and particularly they think it, it, it can sort of start proliferating, start sort of uh, dividing in our, I'm pointing at my nose, our upper, upper kind of airways. And while that's happening, until our immune system kicks in to flush it out, that means that you've got a chance for being able to spread it. Um, it won't necessarily make you sick and it will never go to the extent that it would go if you had no protection 
but you do have a little potential for reservoir. But it does actually look like the, the spreading is ma massively reduced. I think they've done some studies now of that and they have shown that there's quite a reduction in transmission as well from the vaccine. So it's really, really encouraging. Brilliant. Thank you. That that answered that question. Uh, that's great. This is um, Angela's the first question um, uh, from someone outside of this world. And she has uh, there's been a lot of talk that the current vaccines can be easily modified to combat new variants in the future. Will this mean another round of fun testing or can these be rolled out quite quickly? So, Dan, do you want to answer that one? Yeah. So, yeah. So um, it is that they probably can be rolled out pretty quickly, actually. So. Um, at the moment, the the vaccines seem to work well against the different versions of the virus that are most prevalent in at least in the UK. Uh, but there is some evidence that some of the strains may not be picked up as easily uh, by people that you know may not be dealt with as easily with people who've been vaccinated. Um, but it's actually very easy to um, create new versions of these vaccines. So, for example. The Pfizer vaccine that is essentially a sort of uh, a genetic message to that encodes one of the molecules, one of the protein molecules made in coronavirus. You could easily just change that to be the genetic sequence correlating with a different version of the of this type of, of this uh, virus. So it would be very, very easy for companies to do that. The the making the new vaccine, I think, is actually very straightforward. But then it has to go through the testing process, which takes some time, and then it has to be rolled out. Uh, so all of that would be, would be, you know, th those would be the key determinants of how long it takes, how long it takes to get the vaccine to all the people in a safe way, rather than just literally make, making the new vaccine is actually very easy. Brilliant. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Just if you have got a question, uh, just pop it in the live chat or tweet at Cosmic Shambles and, uh, and Trent will send them to me. Uh, JLK100, uh, first part of JLK100's question is, I'd really like to know about the difference between vaccinating adults and children. Do children tend to react differently to vaccines used in adults? Sheena, would you like to start on that one? Well, I think, again, that's a good question and it depends on the vaccine. There's lots of different kinds of vaccine. Um, so for COVID, I think the reason that they're not vaccinating children at the moment is because children weren't really thought to be as at risk from the infection. They weren't really thought to be uh, transmitting the infection as much, although kind of reports that are coming in are sort of varying about that. And of course, it wasn't then tested in children. That's not to say that it won't be safe in children or be effective in children. But it, it, I think it's what we're seeing is, is vaccination in a kind of pandemic kind of, you, you're, you're prioritizing the people who need it most. But of course, many vaccines are given to children. And we know that, that we've got a whole schedule of childhood vaccines that are absolutely critical to protect them. Things like the measles vaccine, uh, the flu vaccines. But here the children tend to get a slightly different version of the vaccine. I'm not sure whether that's because they have a different reaction or whether it's because it's a more palatable version because they tend to get the nasal vaccine, which is actually also an attenuated live vaccine. Um, but yeah, no, it, I think I think it's really down to that. And there's some evidence as well that the type of immune response children have when they get COVID tends to be of a more protective immune response. There have been some initial studies 
trying to unpick how different people are reacting. So I, I think that answers the question. And just uh, there's a follow up question that occurs, occurs to me, Sheena, which is how do clinical trials work for children? Because obviously consent is a difficult thing. So just in terms of the clinical trial process, is it is it the same? Are there any differences? I think it's the same, but the, the, you'd have to get the parents consenting it. So the ones that I always think of um, where children are often vaccinated or some that have been happening recently are some of the malaria vaccination trials where it's very much children that you want to target because children seem to be particularly vulnerable to the very, very worst effects of malaria. So often they are the ones that are, are mostly targeted in vaccination trials. But you go through all the same stages. There's a very regimented steps, series of steps and series of safety tests that you're doing from does it invoke a bit of an immune response? Is it well tolerated? Um, if you take it to people who aren't exposed to the infection, is it well tolerated before you actually take it out into the field? All these steps are still happen with COVID, but they're all happening in a very, very truncated kind of period. We're able to do them much more quickly than waiting to get funded or waiting to get volunteers, which is the usual scenario. Something I, I was. The, oh, sorry, Dan. I think I think the Pfizer. I think I think the Pfizer vaccine was in in the clinical trial they did. They did go down to uh, people aged twelve. I think in, in the initial trial that they did, um, and so I think I think Sheena's right in the sense that it's really at the moment targeting the people who are most vulnerable from suffering with with the worst end of of the type of symptoms you might get. But I think there is some evidence, you know, it's not that it hasn't been tested in children at all. And different countries are taking uh, a different approach to what to do with that. There's there's even other, um, so for example, this comes up, there's a similar question relates to all, all kinds of different groups of people. For example, pregnant women is another category where it's you can't easily, but that there are also some data on that. So out of one of the trials, for example, I think there were 23 women who uh, were on the trial and didn't know they were pregnant and then took the vaccine. And then, so then they're following those women uh, and there's been no problem so far. So I think that, you know, for all, there, there are lots of different categories of people that uh, in time will know exactly uh, uh you know what the what the outcome is and and that is going to lead us that what's really important about that is that there's never been such a enormous global experiment in vaccinating so many people uh before so we're going to get we're going to get loads of information uh about the about human diversity about about our own individual responses to to vaccines across all different groups of people by age obviously also by all other categories of person you might want to uh, suggest and i think we're going to emerge from this with a really deep new understanding of 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 what what each of us how each of us responds to something like a, a very specific uh, vaccine which is going to create you know categories of people and and then in time that should lead to a more personalised view of how treatments will progress. You know, it would be it would be entirely plausible that one version of the vaccine works a bit better in elderly people than than younger people. But but that's just the beginning. That would be just the tip of the iceberg. My, my feeling is that it's very likely that we will see an enormous. Uh, 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 level of diversity in, in our immune responses to this vaccination program, and then we'll and we'll be able to use that in. 
Something I was happy, I was talking to Rupert Beale, who uh, has been on this before, who's based at the Crick Institute, and uh, and talking to him last week, he was saying that, that there's been actually, when we you look at the anti-vaccination movement, sometimes on social media, you can imagine there are huge ramifications. He said, actually, there's been, the uptake has been about 95%. And it's like you said, in terms, and 5% is roughly what they would normally imagine in terms of the number, the time you get to conspiracy theorists, etc., who are quite dogmatic about it. And he said, some vaccine hesitancy but more often than not people have then been persuaded and of course the more that people see the more they go oh this is fine so i think that that's one of those things just to because sometimes with conspiracy theories you can think oh man how is this really going and, and from his outlook i think it's really positive and I, and he's very positive i think for vaccines as a whole because the anti-vax movement as we know via the uh things what, in the what seems MMR, interesting well, what I find really interesting about that, Robin, is, really that about that, Robin is that varies hugely from country to country. So apparently, I mean, I was reading today, I think it might have been in The Observer, I can't remember. It, one of the newspapers was, was it had a very different picture in France. And um, and actually, a little while ago, I was talking to, just happened to be talking to uh, Anthony Lloyd, who's the war correspondent for, for The Times. And he was in Afghanistan and he was saying that people there were like, you know, COVID, you know, we don't need to worry about that. You know, we've got there's a war going on, right? We're, we don't need to worry about things to do. So I think it's, yeah. So although we worry about the sort of anti-vaxxer movement, that that's, that is just a, perhaps just a small aspect of, of what it is that stops people taking the vaccine. And, and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of culture uh, in different, you know, a lot of things play into whether people take up the vaccine or not. So yeah, the, We've, I think we've still got quite a long way to go. To uh, In our country, as you say, right now, it's true that it's going very, very well. But but globally, there's still quite a lot to be done, I think. Uh, well, but, yeah, though, it's not universally going globally well. So there's there are, I mean, I do a lot of work in, in, in communities and there's definitely uh, much different feelings in, in a lot of communities that, that I work with. And we've got a fantastic uh, patient advisory group that feeds into the COVID immunology consortium. And, and, you know, so they're based in all sorts of communities across the UK. And again, there, there's a real difference. So we know, for example, black, Asian, minority, ethnic people are less likely to, to feel trustworthy of the trusting of the vaccines. Um, and there's probably a difference with different age groups as well. So the older generation that we're seeing, perhaps, yes, they are more trusting, but again, if they're white, <laughs> That seems to be the predominant area. I mean, I remember Tony in our advisory group said that he knew of some of his friends who were secretly getting vaccinated because their children didn't want them to have it. So they weren't telling their community members that they were being vaccinated. They were doing that on the fly, which is really, really interesting, but a little bit worrying. So I, I, I think we have work to do. We've got to keep working and reaching out to these diverse communities. There's a good actually Radio 4 had a documentary on about three weeks about a young man based in Bradford who's been uh, I think I think it's called My Name is Jordan but have have a look it's one of the My Name is series and and about the the work that he's been doing to go around the community and to give people some kind of assurance really of of uh, of the the truth about vaccines. Um this is not someone who's uh vaccine hesitant it is from Brian who is a needle phobe and uh Brian says it's probably likely he's in his 40s that uh, in the spring he'll get the covid jab and what worries him is cuz he's a needle phobe he's worried about the fact he said can 
he used numbing gel. If he went to uh, a pharmacy and put numbing gel on his arm before uh, receiving the vaccine, would that be in any way damaging towards the vaccine? Sheena? Um, that's a, that's a, it's an interesting thought. I, 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 I'm not aware of any research that suggests it would be uh, damaging. One of my um, friends actually is involved with delivering vaccines and she does say that, that you know, they, they are used to dealing with people who are phobic of needles and, and you know, they, they, they have got procedures to help support people like that. So, he, you know, he's absolutely not alone. Lots and lots of people are nervous of the needle. It's very, very quick and you really don't notice it. So I think if you're not looking, it'll happen before you're even aware of it. But I don't think the numbing gel will have an effect. Do you, do you Dan? I can't see why it would have any effect, no. Brilliant. Thank Brilliant. you. This is Now, you were mentioning malaria earlier. This is from May. May would like to know, she says, will the advancements we've made with RNA vaccine, thanks to COVID being translatable to other diseases, uh, sorry, to RNA vaccines, will that be translatable in terms of our understanding of other diseases? I've read it may be useful in combating malaria. Um, Dan? Dan? It's definitely going to be, uh, I mean, it is, it is true that this is definitely a revolutionary moment for making these kinds of vaccines and they will be used in other situations, but it doesn't mean that it's the answer to everything. Um, so I'm, I'm hugely confident that RNA vaccines will become uh, a feature of, you know, the medical landscape, but there are still issues. You know, we, we still don't have an HIV vaccine, right? And, and there are, and it's not for want of trying. Um, so there will still be diseases for which we still can't vaccinate against. And so, you know, it is a good moment, but there's a lot to be done. I mean, it's not, you know, this isn't going to be the answer to, to, to everything. Um, vaccines tend to work quite well, actually, for infections that come in through through the respiratory system or through, or through the gut. Um, but vaccines don't work well for other way the, the, the other ways in which an inf the infectious agent gets into the body, uh, which is one of the reasons why it doesn't work. One of the reasons why HIV vaccines haven't worked so well, and and so there are, so there are lots of issues around getting a vaccine to work well. But certainly, this is a good moment for for a new way of yeah. making a vaccine. Malaria is really hard. I mean, malaria it's got a complex really? life cycle. It's got a life cycle in the mosquito. It's got very different stages uh, of life cycle and immune response that you need to deal with it in humans. You know, you've got a blood stage, a liver stage, and then another blood stage again. And it also changes its features for immune recognition as well. So it, it's got this kind of, it's got these what called variable genes. So it can kind of switch the way it looks. So all of those things make it really, really complex to try and design a vaccine for. And, and when you're trying to look at things, for example, in different animals where it's, you know, things have got a life cycle in more than one species, it can be quite difficult to actually have effective lab models. But malaria is one of the best invested, ironically, kind of infections ever in malaria and HIV. I think there's a great deal of money on them, but we still haven't got vaccines that are 100% effective because they're difficult they're really difficult it's something that i've heard say just a question that i've had and friends have asked me and i don't know the answer but it's something that certainly a year ago and more people would look at the latest rover landing on mars or you know amazing widget that went into space and they'd have a cold 
and they'd be sitting there with their snotty nose and headache and they'd be going, how is it that we can put a rover on Mars and we can't sort out the common cold? Does this put us any closer to maybe vaccinating against the common cold in all its many wonderful variants? Or get cross. Um, the common cold's lots of viruses. Uh, it's not one virus, so that's tricky. There's, a, there's several families of viruses that cause the common cold. And again, um, that you've got other issues with them. Some of them, are, they change a lot, so they switch up and, and change around, which is difficult for the immune response. But also our immune response for some of the viruses, like the, cause some of the coronaviruses that you know we're experiencing now with COVID-19 do cause the common cold. We've got about three, I think, that are common in the country. And we don't seem to mount a long-term immune response to them. So we, we are immune for a little while and then the immune system seems to forget. And there are definitely some infections we are aware of now that the immune system kind of forgets over time. And malaria is also an example. You don't ever get a complete sterilizing immunity to malaria if you live in the country where malaria is common. And, and we don't know why that's happening. So that's an interesting thing. So, yeah, there's lots to learn still about immune recognition, but mRNA vaccines great. I think I think what's um, I think what's um, what's what's interesting about that, Helen, is that like it's 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 it it sort of has this idea that getting something onto Mars to take pictures would be harder than dealing with the common cold. But actually, I think that it's kind of easier, right? So, so getting something onto Mars is sort of right. You know, what do I need? I need to escape the gravity of of our planet. I need to make sure it's pointing in the right direction. I need to get it to sleep. You know, I, I don't want to belittle the effort it takes to do that, but I can kind of see, even from the little bit of you know basic physics I know, I can see how that could happen. Whereas, 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 trying to tamper, trying to interfere with this sort of minuscule bit of genetic information packaged in some kind of little thing I can't see that's entering into the body's cells. I mean, that, that to me, it should be seen as actually a, the harder problem that it really is. I think, I think understanding uh, life, the human body, the world of germs, the viruses, the, the, the things we can't see, I think that is, that, that is harder than just getting a chunk of metal to take a picture from Mars. So I think it depends on your viewpoint, right? It, but we shouldn't, you know, I think it's, it's a really hard problem to tackle tackle things like disease and, and, and how, you know, even just how the body works, so many unknowns. You know, there's so many questions that we could ask about the human body or life in general that seem very basic. Well, isn't that the thing that biology is basically more complex than physics? Because biology, can't you go physics, chemistry, and then you get biology. So all of those wonderful things that, you know, trying to understand a virus and trying to understand, you know, mercury are, uh, you know, there's a very different yeah. kind of complexity, which is one of the reasons that it is such a fascinating area. Um, Virginia would like to know, uh, we're a year into this now. Um, so what do we now know in terms of long-term effects, uh, long COVID, etc.? cetera? Um, do I start with you, Sheena? Um, long COVID, is, I assume that's what the question is Yeah, about. basically, what do we know about the long-term effects of, of, of COVID generally, including long COVID? obviously sorry well, it, it, it's something we're still learning about um some studies have, have suggested that one of the things that might be happening is that you have auto-reactive antibodies 
So, you know, you're making all these antibodies against um, the virus, but you you seem to have made them perhaps to your own cells. So it's a bit a bit of a, like an autoimmune disease condition. They definitely described higher levels of these sort of persistent autoantibodies in at least some of the cases of long COVID, which perhaps gives some hope that there might be some ways that we can look at manipulating it. I guess one of the other things that that that's almost certainly happening is is you have you sometimes you're having a really systemic immune response to this virus, particularly if it's gone if it's gone a bit kind of wrong, you know, you have, you've had a uh, cytokine storm, this will cause an enormous amount of damage to the tissue. And that's probably one of the reasons why you then get the autoantibodies, because you're releasing all these damaged cells. But if you've had a huge assault to the body like that, it takes a very, very long time for the body to repair. So I think for some people, they may not have the autoantibodies, but it might be symptomatic of the fact that their body's got to repair over a long period of time but I, it's something that's being actively researched right now in the COVID immunology consortium it's some of the questions that, 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 that they were looking at right now and they've got a year of funding to look at that but I really hope all the, the research councils actually look to extend that because I think the questions about COVID and the immune system are only growing all, all the time but obviously the importance of the discoveries we're realizing is also growing equally. But I don't know if Dan wants to add to the answer. The answer. I, I can't easily add to that other than to say, you know, it's, it is a really important topic. I think I think just, just anecdotally, uh, uh, our understanding of the long-term effects of all kinds of uh, uh, what we once thought of as an acute infection, when you've eradicated the presence of that virus or germ from the body, there are long-term effects that we very, very... Uh, uh, you know, very, very poorly understand. So, and, and uh, my guess as well would be that long COVID itself is very complicated, involves very different kinds of things happening in, in different people. So it, it, it's it's a hugely important area where I can't add anything to what, you know, a lot of okay, now we're going to try. I'm going to see how many we can get through because we've got so many questions. Um, uh, this is from Lee, who would like to know uh, the panel's opinion on mask wearing uh, post pandemic. Um, what, what, how do you feel about the continuation of just wearing masks and, and how helpful that has proved to be? Uh, I know that's probably picked up on people talking about the flu season, etc. Sorry, Sheena, do you want to start? I should have told someone, yeah. <laughs> um, um, I think we were both being really polite there. Um, I, I, I think mask wearing is going to be around for a bit. I, I don't think COVID's going away. I don't think we're going to eradicate COVID. I just don't think, unfortunately, that's likely. I think we're going to move to hopefully a place maybe akin to flu where it's a condition that we're managing each year. We have an expectation. We're looking at annual COVID vaccines if the, if the virus keeps changing. Um, so I think there is a possibility that mask wearing will be something that may be more long term. I certainly think it can't go away in the near future. Really, really can't go away in the near future. We haven't. It's only got everybody vaccinated and we're more confident that the levels are right down. I think uh, the mask wearing is going to be going to be the thing. And I, I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to do some work with Kath Noakes, who's, who's on Sage, and she's a big advocate, of course, around mask wearing and how things distribute within rooms. 
And I think she would she would probably say the same, but I will ask her when I next see her on Tuesday. But is it just about COVID? You yeah, know, there's, been been this, there's a cultural thing in, in the Asian countries, particularly that if they have a cold, they wear a mask and it, they take that responsibility themselves. And it feels like that might that might might that stay? I mean, once people are aware, once you've spent, you know, a year or more thinking about little droplets getting everywhere, do you think that will because in this country everyone's always been sort of dismissive of that, but might this tip the balance to people being a bit less selfish i guess in that regard kind of hope i think people are also a lot more aware of how infections transmit you know there's a because we know about droplets we know about the importance of not using your hand when you cough because that's what people used to do you know or they used to i I remember seeing somebody coughing all over the the place when i was on the train and then they just went and put their hand up to hold the bar and i was just like oh Uh, just just completely grossed out it's a really packed train now that would never happen people would cough like that wouldn't they and and yeah I think so and and the flu the flu season was so much better because people were wearing masks I mean I don't know if the yeah I think yeah I think I hope you're right there is a greater awareness and the importance of hand washing now uh, hopefully that means our children will bring home less disgusting things from from school and college than they currently did. Although I'm not it's, confident. Three days after being at school at the start of September, my youngest brought a cold home that he gave us all. So I'm not confident. Dan, did you want to add something? Dan, did you well, want to add something? Well, I, I mean, it, it, I, I remember in the beginning of this thing, actually, I think we did a, a one of these shambles discussions about it whether whether it was a debate about masks and and it does seem that masks then you know initially it was do masks help do they not help people there was a lot of confusion then it became clear from sort of analysis of who's wearing masks who's not wearing masks and how many people were infected it, it turned out that masks help but and 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 so you know it's true that wearing masks might become part of the fabric of our society but i am a bit upset about that because it is true that they will help us deal with infections and that's true but it's also true that we lose something uh, by wearing masks so i'm obviously you know an advocate that we need to wear masks i'm obviously wearing masks everywhere but i i do i do feel sad about it i do think it's one of the things it's one of it's a big issue for us you know when you know if i'm smiling at someone I recognize in the street and they don't know I'm smiling. I'm not sure they could tell it in my eyes uh, because my eyes are just always looking like they're tired. So I, I don't know. I don't, it is, we do lose something by wearing masks, you know, and, and it, I think it's, I, I think it's a bit sad that we're going to be wearing masks for some time. There was a survey in, in New Scientist this week. I, I've, I read that said that, you know, they interviewed a whole bunch of experts. Uh, uh, I don't know who the experts were, to be honest, but some experts, and, you know, 200 of them were, were asked about a survey. So whoever responded, that people did say that we're going to be wearing masks for a long time till at least 2022. So it looks like it's here to stay. But I am a bit sad about that because we lose something. I'm happy about that because I'm really bad on facial recognition. So that takes a lot of pressure off me. Uh, this is from Joanne, who would like to know, she says, genuinely confused as to how asthmatics are considered at risk from flu and get a jab, but not considered at risk from COVID and excluded from level six. So, uh, Dan, that's, uh, um, how do you, how, what's the explanation for that? What's the explanation for that? Yeah, so what, it, it's, it's true that... Uh, it's true that at the start of the pandemic, we did think that, um, uh, you know, people with asthma who were entitled to get the flu jab would be would be particularly clinically vulnerable. But 
as the as the data emerged, it did seem it, it is clear now that people who have their asthma well controlled and it's not particularly severe are were not at higher risk of of dying from COVID nineteen. So it was it's it's really that that fact just comes from the empirical data of of what's happened. Uh, uh, you know, to people with with asthma, and I think that's true of a of a huge amount of what we know and what we decide from this illness. So, our answer to that question doesn't doesn't really come from a sort of deep understanding of the of the virus, the cells, what happens with asthma, what happens in this or that situation. It, it really just comes from looking at what's happened to people and then saying, "Oh, right, so people who have their asthma under control." And don't have a particularly severe case of asthma, they are not at any higher risk of dying from COVID because that's what the data tells us. So, so essentially, that's the the answer to the question just comes from what has happened to people. So we do have we do have obviously a sense of what the risk factors are. Uh, you know, being older, being obese, your ethnic background, all these these things that that you'll know about. Uh, but but if your asthma is well controlled, it doesn't seem to be a crucial risk risk factor in in brilliant COVID. Thank you, Dan. Uh, this is Pam. Would like to know uh, what is a protein spike and why does it make the virus more contagious? Sheena, do you want to start on that one? The so the virus. I don't know if I've got one of them kicking around. They they look a bit like like my dog's toy. <laughs> they're they're like a little spiky ball. And what the virus needs to do is the virus can't replicate on its own. It's just basically a sort of a little kind of bag of fat um, that's on the outside and in the inside there's some genetic code. But it can't replicate on its own. It needs to nick the replication machinery of a, of a host cell, which, of course, is our cells, particularly our, our lung kind of lining cells. And so it needs to have a way to get into the cell. And the way it uses is it uses these little kind of spikes on the outside of it. These are the spike proteins. And we know that they specifically latch on and recognize to um, something called a uh, sort of acetyl. Is it, is it, what is the receptor called again? Ah! ACE2. It is ACE2. I was going to call it acetylcholine. It's not. Uh, ACE2, which is um, on the cells. And then it uses that to get into the cells. And so modifications in that spike protein can affect how efficient it can get into the cells. For example, um, it, it, there can be the use of like enzymes that kind of help it get inside the cells. Um, that's been one of the things that's been described. So we know that if we block the way it gets into the cells, that's a really good strategy for vaccination because we're blocking how much can get in. Uh, and that's also a really good strategy for our immune system. So a lot of the antibodies that target it are actually trying to stop it getting into the cells in, 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 you know, in the first place. So that's one of the mutations that we're seeing are changes to the structure of the way it gets into cells. That's a very long-winded answer. Sorry. No, that's great. I'm going to go on to the next one, uh, which is from Joanne. Uh, she'd like to know to hear, hear the panel's opinion on the 12-week gap between jabs that the UK and nowhere else seems to be doing. Is this a risk worth taking, Dan? Yeah. So again, so again, it, th these kinds of things uh, they don't come as much from a super deep understanding of whether of what happens in nine weeks, twelve weeks, six weeks. They just come from the data, like what you know, what how much of a of a positive outcome is there from if with these? And it seems like that that 
yeah, the, the the moment it does seem like it was it's it's good. The when the when the doses were spaced apart by twelve weeks, people were better protected. It just comes from sort of in the actual in the actual data of what happens to people. Uh, so. It's, it, I think it turns out that that was the right decision. But of course, it just comes from sort of empirical. We haven't tested. We haven't tested every single v dose. We haven't tested every single possible variation in length of time between doses. We haven't compared different groups of people. But from what we have done, that that pro that plan worked quite worked has worked really well. So just Brilliant. to be clear, are you saying that actually that it might be better with a 12-week gap than it would have been with a three-week gap? Because I think that's quite an important point in this. Yeah, I, it's not just it's the same, it might actually be better. Yeah, so at the moment, yeah, so at the moment, it, yeah, it, it looked like it was more protective to wait longer between the two doses. But there's a sort of lot of nuances and complications in that, which is that if people are, you know, somewhat protected but not fully protected, does that create a sort of bigger reservoir of virus that may by chance acquire mutations that then spread more effectively? So, um, but but in terms of in terms of dealing with a, a strain of virus that exists right now, you are better protected with that longer gap between the two doses. But in terms of protecting society in the long term, there, there's still sort of more understanding needs to be done about about what conditions uh, create opportunities for virus, the virus evolution to happen. And, um, you know, because we're, we're, we're fighting against that essentially at the moment. Right, uh, the next uh, I've got one of the words that I'm gonna, I always mispronounce, so get ready for this. Uh, this is, uh, Avel was reading on, on Reddit this morning about vaccine efficacy. I can't really say efficacy, right? Just so you know. Uh, <laughs> and about the, uh, the two standard doses versus a low dose plus a standard dose, that it actually seems that the efficacy of the low dose plus the standard dose has been better than having two standard doses. Now, can I ask you, you know, what, what do we know about this? Yeah, so this was the um, the AstraZeneca um, trials. So they they did two standard doses in the phase three trial, but they also did an arm of the trials. Arms, unfortunate choice of words. And um, it is a subset of the trial that got this lower dose followed by the higher dose. And overall, they seem to have a higher level of protection. So they wondered if this was going to be the way to go. But I think when they've been looking at the real world data following um, all the vaccines that have gone in, they have concluded now, or I think, or maybe it says more of the people who had that lower, higher dose thing have, have gone on, that actually it's better to have the two higher doses. It's not better to have the lower, higher dose. But what we are seeing is evidence that it's, it, it's working really well to have the bigger gap between the doses. Because I think if I remember rightly, that was the other thing that happened in that lower, higher dose scenario is there was a bit of a bigger gap, if I remember rightly. Is that right, Dan? I'm trying to remember the paper as well since I've read it. Yeah, I think I think that I yeah. think I think I think that I think that is right. Yeah, the, the, the that is what happened. But they were also given in different uh yeah in different environments. One, yeah, it's different countries, wasn't it? Yeah, so it's it's hard to it was hard to interpret at that time. Uh, but yeah. Okay, carry on. I was going to say WR2211, uh, possibly not birth name. Uh, what is a rapid antigen test? Why can some tests get results back in 15 minutes and others require lab work, Dan? Yeah, so it depends how the yeah, so it depends how the how the test is how the test is done and what it's looking for. The the test where you send it off to a lab, they're uh, doing a particular reaction called a polymerase chain reaction to look for 
the the genes that that uh, are, are the virus itself, and other tests can just look for, for example, whether you have uh, antibodies that could stick to um, a protein that the virus has. So there are different kind of tests um, looking for whether in your blood you have signatures that are immune response to the virus or looking for whether you have the genes of the virus that then requires a more complicated test to do. Thank you. Um, Brilliant. This is a, a general one which I can throw out to, to all of you really from TJ who would like to know how worried are you about schools reopening? So what's your general attitude in terms of uh, schools? Sheena, can I start with you? I mean, the evidence is mixed about whether or not children are a major reservoir for the for the virus. And I think I think I've got mixed views in some ways. You know, it'd be great if we could be super, super, super safe and we'd not have anybody back until we saw the levels drop right, 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 right down. But then it is so, so bad for kids well-being to be at home it's also quite bad for some parents well-being to have the kids at home I'm really feeling for colleagues who've got very young children at home at the moment and they're trying to do the job they just they have this just look of utter exhaustion trying to homeschool and and you know do the job and look after the kids so I think from the well-being point of view I think it is actually quite good for the for the kids to get back to school. Um, I'm encouraged that they are going to be tested and monitored. That is a really positive step. Um, it would be good to look and, uh, you know, what the teachers, it would have been, I don't know, maybe they should have put them in a higher priority group for vaccination. But hopefully most of us are going to have received our vaccines anyway if they keep rolling out at this rate. So a lot of them will be getting their vaccines. So we'll have that concern sort of gone but yeah I, I think it, it's balancing trying to make sure that the cases are really low with with well-being from my perspective but Dan may have a different take on it different Dan? take on it Dan? no I, I mean it's it's really hard I I have uh, two teenage kids and I, I can see the effect on their sort of well-being in general it, it's really important to that it's that schools reopen the question of whether teachers should be vaccinated, I think, is really difficult. Um, I would honestly love teachers to be vaccinated. But, you know, I do also understand that, 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 that it is a, that the argument is, I understand the argument that if you vaccinate teachers, then you then what about police? What about supermarket workers? What about all these other groups of people that are in direct contact with people? And I do understand that it is simpler to just go by age group and keep it going and keep the momentum for vaccinating larger numbers of people. So I do understand that. And it, and it is really, really hard. Uh, uh, yeah. I wish the teachers were vaccinated, but I understand it's really difficult. <laughs> Ellen? Um, yeah. So I think, I think one of the things I, the, the school's going back, I think you just have to try it. The benefit seems to be it's, it's before the Easter vacation, right? So it's a couple of weeks and then we can sort of pause and see what's happened. The one thing I do think in the prioritization of the vaccines, the teachers thing is that, in, it's a sort of extension of what Dan said, is that every time someone goes up the priority list, someone else comes down the priority list. And it really bugs me that people don't talk about that. And it's not a bad thing. It's just that you have to be like, by definition, everyone can't be a priority. And it's there have to be priorities because you can't physically press a button and vaccinate everyone this second now. And I just wish that this was one of those discussions that where there was where it's not um, this group, this group, this group. It's like, OK, where are our priorities? Is it if these go up, then these go down? Is that what we want? 
And and I wish that debate was more honest in a way, because I think it's too easy for people who are worried and frightened and all these other things for very good reason to kind of go, oh, but but what about me? And what about this? And what about this? And And there is a place, I think, for sort of taking a step back and going, OK, we hear you. So let's run some scenarios. And if we push this up there and that goes down, is that, is that OK? Is that is that what we want? And I think there needs to be more of that kind of discussion, but really open, like transparency is absolutely key to trust on this. Well, my career is still over to at least the in this attic, so I can probably put very, very low priority. Um, the, the uh, that if it stays sunny, your hair and the sunshine is giving you a halo. Well, do you know what? That's actually not my hair and the sunshine. That is my natural halo. Thank you. Uh, Robbie, let me just come in one second. I think it's really important second, what Helen said. It's really important what Helen said there that, that we that we can actually like. I think that the 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 all of us as the public as just citizens can could take a bit more data than than often the media give us credit yeah. for. So that you know that exact debate. If if we vaccinate teachers, what exactly would it mean? And you know, like you just say, what are the group? What are the priorities? And, li and literally, how does it affect the overalls? You know, we could take that data and that could be infinitely more transparent. That is where I think the government messaging could get a lot. Brilliant. And Thank remember, you, there are huge parts of the world that haven't access to vaccines yet. And until the whole world can be vaccinated, none of us are really safe. And I think that's the other thing that gets forgotten is, you know, the countries that can afford it have gobbled up as many vaccines as we can which is great for the people who live there but there's all these countries that are really really vulnerable at the moment so thank Sorry. you Trinity. uh we're out of time but i'm going to keep going anyway and then anyone can leave at any point uh because we are at four o'clock but I, I want to try and cover everything um if you are disappearing now just remind you 6 30 uh josie long lease mayor and special guests will be doing uh, a young ones quiz and also if you can support us uh via patreon this is the way that we keep making all these kind of uh shows uh as a small public service broadcaster out of an attics of the world um this is from jivon and also from emma as well we've had pretty much the same question uh, and this is not really a science question, but I'm interested in hearing uh, the thoughts on what old normal things you think will be victims of the pandemic or at least be hugely overhauled in terms of things like offices, business trips and the use of remote learning. So what do you think might be the uh, the biggest changes that we'll see kind of remaining some of the things that will stay in place? Helen. Oh, so, oh, a, shift so a shift to local living. It's one of the biggest things, both for the climate and for people's mental health is appreciating their local environment, having friends in their local environment, maybe moving to somewhere where they like their local environment and then just living more locally. That that shift in the importance of the high street actually being a place for people to go to. Not I like I understand there are people there are retail jobs that have been very, very hard hit by all of this. But in the, the long term, wouldn't it be nicer if the high street was a place you went to spend time with people rather than just to buy stuff that you and the planet doesn't need? So and also active transport, you know, people getting out on bikes and walking, all that kind of thing. So I, I hope that those are the the those are two long term shifts that we'll see. And then the other one is just a bit more empathy. Like you know, other people are not idiots. <laughs> I don't know if that. I don't, maybe I'm a bit too optimistic here. But this idea of key workers suddenly everyone works out. You know, it's not just teachers and nurses. But how about the people? Like uh, uh, this year, they have literally been tens of thousands of seafarers on cargo ships who cannot leave the ship and cannot go home. And they are working to bring our freight here. And they are legally not allowed to leave their ships. They're basically in a kind of indentured slavery now. Um, and and no one's. You know, there's all these invis people who were invisible. 
until something like this makes them visible. And I think remembering that there is a system that we rely on and just lifting the lid on how it works, I think that would be a good thing. I mean, I've got a whole list of other things, but I should probably let uh, Sheena and Dan take it. Well, we'll do those next Sunday, okay? Um, (laughs) Sheena. I I agree with with Helen, actually, about this this idea of appreciating where you are and and making the most of outside. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be a bit more countrified where I live. And I've seen a lot more people going out and enjoying the kind of fresh air. And I would like to think that that would that would stick. And this idea of just appreciating some of the little things in life a little bit more. You know, I don't think as many people are going to go back in five days a week. We're not going to be flying around all over the place. We're going to really just gosh, I'm so excited about seeing my friends in real life. That, that to me, you know, people saying you want to go abroad. I don't care about going abroad. I want to see my friends and have a cup of tea with them. You know, it's, it's my horizons have come down. But that to me would be one of the most exciting things. And just cherishing those moments, I think, is, is probably what I would say. Dan? Well, I, I agree with, with everything you guys with, have said. And everything you guys have said. And I mean... I honestly didn't really know the people that live on my street before, <laughs> which is just sad, right? But now I kind of do do know about them, you know, and and so I, I think that hopefully we'll keep that. It's also true, actually, you know, I mean, I've always enjoyed live art and culture, and it, but it's it's phenomenal how how hard it, how much of an impact uh, not having that is on on my life, you know. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. I mean, what. I wouldn't have thought, you know, going to see Robin Ince in some pub with, you know, what, 50 people is so important. But it does seem really important. And, 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 but, you know, going to big music festivals, right? I mean, what, it's amazing how, how not being able to do that has had such a huge impact. So I think, I think although science is, is going to get us out of this, it, art and culture is, has got to be, you know, seen as this massive thing that we've, I'm no fan of James Bond, but I will definitely be keen to go and see that James Bond movie that's been held on someone's DVD player for the last year. Yeah, some of the cinema owners, not only. It's a very interesting (laughs) thing. We'll have this debate at some point because I think one thing we've found out is that though people have realised the importance of the arts, uh, what we've realised is that an enormous number of people, and I know it's not the only area, but it is one of the areas that has really suffered in terms of people who've not had any form of bailout whatsoever, who've not, you know, who've really, um, so, and also I'll just quickly mention the fact that if you actually see the amount that the arts brings into the UK and you see the fact that what's happened via Brexit as well is going to destroy a huge chunk of it. And I will go on a soapbox later on. I'm going to open my window and you'll be able to hear it at least as far as Aberdeen. And I'll try and project it a little bit further than that. Um, The, uh, I'm going to just going to throw some questions questions at you and if possible if you could just lead tell people where they can go to find out more about this just so we can try uh helen wanted to know uh talking before about uh black asian and minority ethnic groups about the the fact that uh, what knowledge have we now got in terms of the fact that uh certain groups it does appear have been uh more adversely affected um and it's not merely been down to socio-economic factors um where are good places for uh people like helen to go to find out more about that um the UK kick website is is very good uh, which is looking at all the uh, immunology of covid 
Uh, also looking, it's got stuff about kind of how the virus is changing. So I think that's generally quite a good source of information. Uh, I know research is now being funded into those questions particularly. Um, conversation's always a good place as well. You see a lot of helpful little resources there. Have you got any to add on that one, Dan? There was a there was a document there, there was a documentary on TV really recently about it and and uh, well, I can't remember what it's called but the bottom line is that we don't know the answer but it is a really important issue we don't know the answer as to why uh, the Bain group has been so severely affected it's 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 crucial that we work this out but we don't know as far as... a quick one from Donna uh, is it a good idea to get a COVID test before getting the vaccine does it matter if you're asymptomatic for instance um. I think I, th I think so. They have they they have done a bit of research trying to ask if people have different immune responses if they've had COVID, and some people are having a kind of bigger response. I think to the vaccine, so it's certainly not going to protect you against your asymptomatic infection if you've got it when you get the vaccine because vaccines don't work that quickly. They're not they're not a treatment. They are preventative. Um, I, if you've only just got, I don't know if you've only just got the infection. I'm, I'm guessing because you won't. It takes a while for the immune system to get going with the vaccine. It'll take a while for your immune system to get going with the COVID. So, I'm not sure it'll make much difference. But certainly, if you've already had COVID, it can make a bit of a difference to how you react to the vaccine. I don't know if you want to add anything there, Dan. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I can't see why it would be of any particular. Uh, issue so I think get the vaccine whatever. thank you all very much uh, I think we got through nearly I'm sorry the questions we didn't get to hopefully uh, Penny uh, Mark and others I think we kind of answered your questions earlier on I'm sorry we weren't perhaps as specific but uh, run out of time next week I can't remember what we're doing next week but we'll be doing another subject Helen will be back sorry Helen you were, there wasn't as uh, plowed the, right. the COVID stuff uh, um, today I hope these things have been uh, useful to you we'll do another COVID show probably in, uh, in two or three months time as well and the main thing is I would, which it is, I was talking to Emma Hodcroft, who was on one of the first ones we do, which is just keeping up to date because we were talking about the fact that the first one of these we did, as we were saying about masks, there was a great deal of uncertainty. And also, uh, Emma talking to her was saying also the worry about the shortage of PPE when you were uncertain means that sometimes there was perhaps holding back on when we didn't have a full on of mask. And that kind of stuff is still getting spewed out by people when it's no longer in any way relevant so that's one of the things keep up to date as much as you can because this is an ongoing situation and as, as we found out today uh, from Sheena and Daniel there's still a lot of things that aren't understood and there's still a lot of work being done thanks very much for watching as I said uh, back at 6.30 with a very different thing uh, I hope a supremely childish take on the young ones uh, next week Tim Minchin is on tips for existence also book shambles this week is Mark Steele and Natalie Haynes and we're talking uh, about Jeremy Hardy thanks very much for watching support us for our Patreon thanks to our producer Trent bye bye thank you very much for listening Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.